Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. Uh, my name is David Gibney and I'm your host this week. I'm joined as always by my co-host Michelle Byrne and we're welcoming this week on board Connor McCabe as well. So, um, But we're going to go straight. Usually what we do is we go to the front pages of the papers and it's usually one of the hosts or the co-hosts that does it. But this week we have a special guest on. We have John Barry um, and, and a lot of you will, will know John. He's been on this show before. They also run the ABC podcast for um, the, the Green... What, what's the name of it? It's ABC... ABC's of Green Politics. Green Politics. Um, so what I'll say... Uh, this week is that John has managed to outdo all of us. He's read every paper in the country. Uh, he's up since seven o'clock this morning reading them. So we're going to go straight to John to do the front pages, if that's all right with you, John. No problem at all, Dave. Thanks. And uh, hello. Good morning, Michelle and, uh, and Connor. So listen, this could be uh, Bill, this part as the climate change, climate breakdown special, given that um, it's wall-to-wall coverage of the climate crisis on the back of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change release of their report on Monday. And then you had on Thursday, the release of the Environment and Climate Report from the Irish uh, EPA. And I'm sure we can um, get into that. So in terms of front pages, and it's something actually, Dave, you had mentioned before we went on air, it's just really bizarre. And I'm sure we can have a good discussion about this. How and why is it that the business post, you know, clearly representing a particular class uh, set of interests and in particular ideological perspective. Uh, from my reading of the whatever eight, uh, eight, eight or so papers I read this morning with the 37, as I counted more climate change stories, some of the best ones actually are in the business post. And there's a couple in, in there we get into. But on the front page, in a way, it kind of exemplifies the, um, the, the, the dilemma or the contradiction that we're in at the moment. And um, the headline is about uh, McConnell um, talks about farmers going to have to do more in terms of reducing emissions, you know, obviously the Minister for, for Agriculture. So it's on the back of the two reports that clearly is identified as, as this pod and others have pointed out that across the island of Ireland, our big challenge is going to be data centres, which I know is a particular issue that this pod has highlighted and you yourself, Dave, and we can get into that, but particularly agriculture, um, given that um, methane emissions are much more potent as a greenhouse gas than uh, carbon dioxide, even though they're shorter lived. And there's a real backlash led by the Ulster Farmers Union here in the north to a a fairly modest climate change bill going through the assembly, but certainly the IFA uh, down south. And McConnell Logue, in a way, um, is clearly on the side of the farmers, uh, much like Edwin Coots up here in the north is on the side of the farmers, and basically saying, yes, farmers are going to have to do more in terms of reducing their um, emissions But what he's going to do, and let's finish on this. So here is the dilemma. So on the back of scientists effectively screaming at the top of their lungs in this climate change report, saying we need to do something now, move faster and much quicker, because the dangers of the climate crisis are much uh, going to happen much sooner than originally thought. What we have, our Minister of Agriculture saying is he's going to look into it. Um, But he's already framed it that, well, the chances are it's going to be limited in terms of what farmers can do. And therein lies the model, is that there's an acceptance now. Nobody can be a climate change denier. But what we have now is a a more insidious form of, in my my view, climate scepticism in terms of, oh, it's too difficult. We need to move slower. So in other words, the orthodox representative system, you know, pro-capitalist interests now know that it's politically expedient to accept the reality of the science, 
but this must be uh, um, framed in a way that business as usual can be accommodated. Uh, so expect lots. And that's why I think Business Post is a very good analysis of rep- accurately representing a class position, which basically sees that the future lies in low carbon green capitalism or what I call biofueling the Hummer. Uh, and of course, the problem is it's the Hummer that's the problem, not necessarily the fuel uh, that goes into it. So I'll end it there, but I'm sure there's lots we can touch upon in terms of, as I say, this wall-to-wall coverage of the climate crisis, but very little, in my view, climate action. Right. Well, we can, I'm going to get into a, a deep conversation, I think, in a couple of minutes about that. But just interestingly, um, the Irish Times didn't really have anything on the front page of it uh, in, in relation to the IPC report or climate change whatsoever. Um, we have on a Taliban move to surround Kabul as uh, NATO plans political solution. Political solution. In, it, it's it's an interesting take on it. Um, Tusla claims charity failed to reveal abuse is another story there by Jack Power. Um, this is the fact that Extern, an all-island charity which works uh, with at-risk children um, running addiction, homelessness and mental health services, failed to notify Tusla of serious child protection incident for more than a year. So, um that's that's another one uh, and then finally they've a, a little piece there up on the top with a giant picture of meteors over art so we're looking at meteors in space rather than looking at the planet in the irish times this week and that we actually live on and um, the business post itself and, and again we're going to be getting into some of this stuff uh, i know michelle has a couple of stories on housing but rtb landlords leaving homes empty rather than reduce rents which i found the Killian Woods is doing some great jobs uh, uh, every week, nearly great articles on on housing. Um, I just have an interesting perspective on that one, I think, uh, that I want to come back to in a couple of minutes. I know you've covered the McConnellog story about farmers and um, that's covered on the inside as well. And then finally, blackouts loom this winter as emergency plan is abandoned. And we might get into that one as well about Eamon Ryan, who's the Minister uh, for Environment, um, but how a number of plans to commission uh, and rent um, 200 megawatt en- emergency gas generators this win- winter have been scrapped because of uh, a threat, a legal threat around uh, competition um, or open competition for for who supplies these these firms. But um, I don't know, Michelle, have you got any stories there on the front page or anything else you want to talk about first? Yeah, so I had a read of the Sunday note for my sins this weekend just to to mix it up. And uh, yeah, so it was actually mostly a a housing um, uh, coverage this weekend. But on the front, um, it had a piece, 500 million for developers to coax them back to building. So this is literally just a direct fund to developers. um, And this is part of obviously this this long awaited homes for all um, scheme that everyone's uh, waiting for in anticipation. But like as things get leaked obviously, or as things come out or they're testing maybe some of the ideas before the the full piece comes out. um, This is one of the the things that we're hearing now. So huge subsidies to builders. um, And they're talking about how, you know the rental sector is gonna be massively affected because people are returning to work soon. um, And we don't realize how the housing crisis like a lot of kind of like this you know setting the scene up for this is why we now just need to hand money to developers um to in order to build literally buy to lets like we're not even talking about you know building homes at this stage it's literally the rental pieces and they're talking about um a kind of a two piece so like one where they're going to then separately to that there's going to be like a rural towns fund where they're going to kind of like set up sites 
um, essentially where they're much easier to build on. So like creating services so that you can just go in and build a house on top of it and the, the water and everything. And of course, Irish water gets a mention in there as well and how they'll need, uh, it'll be complemented by Irish water, of course, and all of the work that they're doing. And then in the front page of their business section, then it goes on to talk about like how, water, how Irish water needs two billion extra a year to solve the housing crisis. So it's kind of like you're laying the foundations here a little bit for like, Right, we're just going to hand the developers money over here and then Irish Water, right, of course, as they always do in the last sentence, talk about water charges. Um, so they're talking about, like, obviously, we need essential uh, water projects and infrastructure for all of these houses that are going to be built. Um, but right in the bottom of course, it says, you know, we've legacy decisions about uh, charging for domestic water and what that means. And if, if we're to do this infrastructure, basically, that the housing crisis is going to... Uh, be on the pivot of whether we bring in water charges as far as I'm um, gathering from linking these two stories together and um, so I, I, I don't I think we're going to see that kind of story come up again where we're talking about water charges housing crisis and of course you know I wouldn't be surprised if they brought it into the environmental argument as well um, and making a nice little trio for themselves until we just eventually they have they have a, a more and more reasons where they're, they're pulling out for the Irish water charges so Dave I'm sure you'd be delighted to hear that. Yeah, well, I'll go to Connor next in a second, but just before I do, because this is only a small story, and um, there is a story about Irish water and wastewater treatment plants as well in the Business Post, um, and it talks about Heather Humphreys, who's the Minister for Rural Development, has asked Irish water if it is spending enough on water, new water infrastructure in rural towns and villages, and as you say, a lot of it is based on the rejection of planning permission for housing in rural areas on the basis that there isn't enough water uh, treatment plants in the area. And then they have a whole special later on in the paper about how uh, everyone wants wastewater treatment; they don't want it near them. Um, so that this seems to be an issue. But but your your mention about they need two billion extra uh, of spending is really interesting. I find because they're saying here that the minister. Uh, in, in charge that O'Brien has secured an extra 100 million in, in increase in Irish waters funding, bringing the overall budget this year to 1.3 billion. So if they need an extra 2 billion, you're talking about nearly tripling the spending on, on, on water infrastructure, uh, which is interestingly the perspective that right to water had <laughs> and said, we need huge increases in spending at this moment in time to fix the leaks and all the rest of it. But look, it does link in nicely with some of the other stuff around data centers, because, you know, as we know, one data center is currently using more water than Dundalk, 40,000 40, houses in Dundalk. The Facebook one is using more water than that on its own. And we have 70 different water or, uh, data centers around the country. So when they talk about climate change, it's it's always, um, I, I find that they must be nearly biting their lip trying not to laugh at us. Uh, Connor, you wanted in around some of the front pages as well. Yeah, I mean, just 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 to kind of follow on from from like John's kind of points there, like um, on the front page of the Sunday Business Post, um, there's the article on 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 farmers, but there's also one on on like blackouts loom this winter, uh, energy and and like Lorcan Murray and uh, sorry uh, Daniel Murray and, and like Lorcan Con Allen, um. In one paragraph, just just it just sum up what is going on here, and it says it, 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 they say that the increase in the number of these power shortage um, alerts is due there to the rise in demand from from data centres. There was outrages at at two major uh, gas plants, at the retirement of two P four uh, power st uh, stations, and a weak kind of pipeline for a uh, for new firm power generation kind of capacity. So much so that like Eamon Ryan has had to order the um the reopening of the three coal fired kind of 
deacon of fossil fuel can afford plants at, at Tarbert and that can ask on um, Eden Dairy. That's leading, that has led to a 15% rise in carbon emissions for the first uh, six months of the year. So uh, fair play, Eamon. Um, he's in their year and he's already uh, risen orange kind of carbon emissions by kind of 15%. Um, fair fucks him, you know. Um, so what we're seeing here, of course, is that there's a really good article that was put up just today. Well, it's actually from June, but it was shared again today by by the uh, Cork kind of councillor, uh, by Lorna Brogue. And it's a it's an excellent kind of um, contrast to the analysis that has been put forward in the Sunday Business Post. As as John said, um, the, the, uh, there is kind of great coverage, but there's a single ideology that is running through all of that kind of coverage, and that's the and that's the uh, and that's the purpose, you know, is to try and shape the the the, the narrative. Um, in terms of their kind of solutions and uh, not kind of real solutions. And Lorna kind of points this out uh, by saying that what we're seeing happening here, especially with the high profile of kind of data centers, is Ireland turning from a, a tax haven to a carbon haven. Um, that what you're seeing now is kind of transnational kind of a, a transnational, transnational capital is being offered tax breaks, land, and incentives to set up shop here. Um, because we will take on board your carbon kind of emissions for you. So you have kind of data centers that are being kind of uh, like kind of set up. We do not have the infrastructure for these kind of data centers, not even close to it. So instead of having a complete kind of moratorium on all kind of data centers, um, which is in kind of Amy Ryan's kind of remit, um, he is his solution instead of the obvious one which is saying that, no, Ireland is not going to be a dumping ground for, for carbon emissions for, for transnational capital. But no, because that would upset the whole Compador middleman kind of system, which I've written entire fucking books about. Um, you know, so like that would, that would upset their game. And their game is completely tied into the Sunday Business Post one. The, the closest that the Sunday Business Post comes to a, a kind of, you know, realistic kind of um, analysis. As as John said, it's covered, but the solutions aren't. So in terms of ones that actually kind of touch around, on kind of real kind of solutions, it's by kind of Sean McCabe of, of Task. And, um, you know, he, he like points out that, you know, he says that relying on market-based kind of approaches to, to kind of deliver kind of climate action Will lead to, it, 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 it will lead to people making impossible choices because we don't have the infrastructure for people to make that transition. So all you're doing is just taxing people and taxing, and that's going to affect kind of uh, those on the low incomes more. And that's the plan. It's in the accountancy firms, the legal firms, and the entire middleman system that is geared towards FDI. And to keep that flow of FDI coming into Ireland, they're saying data centers, you, you can set up here and do what you like here, even though we do not have the physical infrastructure for them. Yeah, 
it's uh, deeply depressing. And just on that, who's going to pay and all the rest of it, there is an article as well in the Business Post, which we can maybe come back to, but it's by Daniel Murray again. Energy bills set to soar as wholesale gas prices double in one year. Um, we'll get into great detail about that in a couple of minutes. But John, I wanted to go to you next because obviously this week we saw the IPCC report coming out. Um, for those of our listeners who maybe have been living under a rock or haven't managed to hear or read anything about it, can you just explain what the this this report uh, covers who who is it that's writing this report what are the key findings of it just give us some of the basics that, that people need to hear sure yeah so it's the intergovernmental panel on climate change um, and it's it's working group one uh, was the uh, the authors that produced this report and its official title is climate change 2021 the physical science basis yes uh, very sexy and compelling title and all it does and there's a lot in the all it's the clearest most up-to-date and most importantly um, written in a very accessible manner with some really interesting, easy to understand graphics and, and language that basically tells us we're fucked. Um, if we keep going down the path of our dependence upon something the report doesn't mention, and this is of course significant to understand, is the IPCC uh, reports are a composite science political negotiation it isn't like, you know, I work as an academic and, you know, as Connor, you know, would know is also an academic, that when you produce a report that you want to, or an article that wants to go into a journal, for example, it's ripped apart um, by your academic colleagues and then you have to change it or respond. But that's not how, that's not only how the IPCC reporting um, is done. It explains why it's always, always much more conservative than I think it could be because. 195 governments, line by line, then has to agree to final report. So it's a combination of scientific endeavor, modeling, data crunching, uh, and so on. But then it's always um, political in the sense that it has to be signed off by the, the most countries around the world. And it's for that reason, and people might find this surprising, and I'll talk about some of the headline findings of the report in a moment. But for me, What's really um, shocking in a way is that the word fossil fuels does not appear once in the report. And that's because of intensive lobbying by countries like Russia, Saudi Arabia and so on, major oil producers. So we have a report that's talking about the, the there's more evidence that climate breakdown is happening quicker. Um, it's happening unevenly in every part of the world. It, it's more than likely, um, you know, and, and a very good um, local climate scientist here, now John Sweeney from Maynooth, um, but also you know his his colleague Peter Thorne at Icarus Icarus Unit in Maynooth, and they were they've been part of the um, the global scientific community that's produced this report. You know they're fairly clear that within the next ten years we will probably pass over the critical one point five degree global average warming threshold, which is what the Paris twenty fifteen agreement was supposed to try and keep us down below that's going to be busted because we are not going Eamon Ryan and the Irish government opening up fossil fuel you know uh, energy providers to you know make sure that we feed our data centers you know the fact that even that with the pandemic and the shutdown of you know flying of major manufacturing centers in in Ireland I think it only reduced our carbon emissions by about six percent and globally it's fairly insignificant so even that major shock of the pandemic wasn't enough to get us on the right path. And that gives us the scale of the challenge. 
So it's a reality check on where we're at at the moment in terms of the best available climate science. It's intensifying, you know, um, once in a hundred years events like storm surges or extreme heat and flooding are now going to be much more frequent. And I think part of why the, the IPCC report has landed so well in the sense at least of it being recognized as an issue that you can't ignore, never mind as, as Connor and I have, have both said that the solutions often we find in the mainstream media are nowhere near adequate, is that I think we've just experienced in the last month on our wee tiny island, both extreme heat for the very then had extreme flooding. So it's now very real for people. So I think that's part of the, the context. We're going to see a lot more coastal erosion. Very worryingly, we're going to see the permafrost starting to melt. And that, that's tracked a lot of you know carbon that's going to start being released in the high Arctic tundra in places like Russia and northern Canada. We're going to see a, a warming ocean. And there's a kind of a, an interesting story on that in yesterday's Guardian, where we're now seeing poisonous sea snakes extend our range across particularly the, the Southern Pacific in Australia, in uh, New Zealand, in Korea, places where these snakes don't normally exist. That's just an example that uh, the warming oceans are going to kill off the Great Barrier Reef. That's already in terminal decline, but species are going to start to, to move. And in particular, we're beginning to see that cities um, where most are, are mostly by the sea, they're going to have to start investing in climate adaptation you know, sea defences uh, and so on. So essentially, it, it there's nothing over 30 years, but it's the clearest evidence that things are changing quicker and faster than the previous models had predicted. And therefore, the, 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 there's a real sense of urgency. But the problem is the science is telling us that. And then we read the Business Post, the Irish Times, the Guardian, or most of the mainstream media, and the responses are what I would call this greening of business as usual approach. You know, you have three pieces, for example, um, all on the one page in the Irish Times yesterday. You've got a piece about um, the Greens leaving a legacy to, to save the planet in terms of the climate crisis. Then you've got a, a rather worthy, you know, piece from Madagascar. Madagascar is now suffering a famine directly as a result of a climate crisis. And that really raises the issue of the the climate injustice that's going on here. And just as a, a, a last point, to, to show the inadequacy of the mainstream media's responses to this, is that that article in the Irish Times talking about the Greens, it explicitly says radical change is the shift from cars to electric cars. Now, mother of God, if that's what radical change is in response to a climate emergency, we really are fucked. But the last thing I'd say, if you look at the Irish Times editorial and fair play, they have a one of the, you know, an editorial piece on the climate crisis. And they actually say that the, the best responses to both the Irish Environmental Protection Agency report and the IPCC actually have come from people before Profit and Sinn Féin. But then very quickly they say, why are Sinn Féin and the left against carbon taxes? The Irish Times is really clear that, you know, part of the solution to the climate crisis must be carbon taxes in some fetishized way, which is, of course, going to, you know, lead to a, a, an unjust transition in many respects and actually lead maybe to a backlash by ordinary people against, you know, uh, policies for the climate crisis. So we have a recognition in the press in terms of volume, if not in quality of the analysis, but it's certainly there. But again, we're back to this issue that the solutions are milk and water, greening business as usual, tech will save us, 
or market-based signals. Um, and I think that is the issue we need really to get into. And that's where we have to go beyond the mainstream media into, as Connor said, into that piece by Lorna Bow, or even, and maybe this is a me pitching for a separate um, episode, Dave, of the pod, on looking at um, what's happening in, in the more radical forms of green activism, of essentially how to blow up a pipeline, that actually are we not at the stage now where we have to directly tackle fossil fuel infrastructure? And if not abandoned, but certainly only see that parliamentary policy action will not work. We are going to need much more aggressive, scaled up direct action um, in terms of, of tackling the root source of the problem, which is fossil fuels and capitalism, neither of which is mentioned in the scientific report, but it just simply lays out the basis. That, that, that's all really interesting. I I noticed the, that the exact same editorial as you and, and the way that they phrased it and went straight after Sinn Féin and people before profit and actually said the Irish left's aversion to um, having a carbon tax. Um, and I love this. It's a bit like the Irish Times coverage around, around water charges. None of it is evidence based. We just want a carbon tax and we, fetishization is the word is the right word to use. It, it, it doesn't matter who the carbon tax is on or, or what happens with it. But what, what I found very interesting about that editorial was the very last paragraph, which lauds um, Leo Varadkar and his St. Patrick's Day address at yeah. the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. We need to see, to see the same leadership qualities emerge again. But there is a little evidence of it in the climate arena. Like, like this, this is what the Irish Times is looking for. They're looking for optics. They want the presentation from a statesman-like person who who has nice words and rhetoric and references, fucking movies, and um, that yeah. he's seen in the past, right? Rather than actual substantial um, uh, policies that they're they're planning on implementing. We we all know um, that our our our. COVID reaction wasn't the greatest. You know, we look at what New Zealand did or Australia did, but yeah, here we are again talking about how he stood out there on that lovely platform and looked really good and gave and look, fuck off, we need action we need it now. Uh, uh, mean uh, it. And, and the other thing, Dave, just, to, just before you pass over to Connor or, or Michelle, in that editorial, what's also really interesting, and I know Connor is a great thinker on this in terms of strategy, if you read the editorial, they're very clear. They've learned the lessons of the Gilets Jaunes movement in France. So they're saying we still want the carbon tax, but we're not going to do it in the way that Macron did in terms of increasing in diesel. They're aware of the potential of particularly working class, you know, hard pressed people who have to use their cars because it's shit public transportation. So what we're beginning to see as a, I mean, is green capitalism beginning to you know discern a new business model but they're aware that yes we want a carbon tax but we have to be clever about it and, and not do what the french did because of, of the, the you know the class backlash um, against that and no doubt there's also at the back of the irish times kind of ideological position the lessons of the water charges movement as well so it's going to be really interesting to see how and in what ways the climate action report that's going to be produced by the government next month how does it present? What's the optics around the, uh, you know, carbon tax? Because I think that's that's going to be the, the you know, the, the tip of the, of the spear on this issue. That that has to be absolutely challenged and and you know pushed back in terms of getting ordinary people to benefit from the uh, you know the climate transition because that will do the exact opposite. Connor, you you wanted in on this? Yeah, uh, just briefly, there because. Um, I know that Michelle wants to cover kind of housing, but like um, on this, 
on, on this issue here is that again, like for me, it goes back to what are the what what's the conceptual apparatus which the original class uses to make sense of how the world works, and it's it's just it cuts across that entire class and price signal is part of it it's what is drummed into them in like ucd in all of their kind of uh, schools it's um all of their kind of uh, peers it's all and and that's what carbon tax is all about it's all about that if we increase the price of things that will send a signal to to makers of these products and to consumers that this is no longer kind of viable that doesn't work when it comes to socially necessary infrastructure such as energy and transport and even food. It doesn't work that way unless you raise wages, which you, which you don't want to do. So what I see here is that this goes back to how the middle class thinks, how the Irish middle class thinks, and how they think, how they make sense of the world. And this is just, it's instinctive to them because all our friends do it. Their entire kind of peer group, all their schooling tells them that price signal is is the way to go. Eamon Ryan, he's on record saying that price signals will like sort this out. Um, in the in the Sunny Business Post, in their article on how how Corporate Ireland is in a race to be green or to go green, they say in it that thankfully the market is now starting to drive change. The market cannot drive change because this is not a market. Like this is not kind of competition. There's another line from the head. Of the of of the regulator for uh, for energy, and he's you know in, in this article around kind of about kind of energy prices, and he says that you know we encourage uh, customers to to shop around and to renegotiate with their kind of supplier. The um, is to kind of shop around in the market. It gives the illusion that this that this is kind of competition. This is not competition. This is a bit like. Like Dublin getting bet by Mayo, that's that's competition, right? Um, at the Olympics, that's competition. What they're saying here is that if you're an Olympic sprinter and everyone else is like uh, taking drugs, maybe you should shop around and find some other sport for you to do. Try the 500 meters or try boxing, maybe. You know, shop around. This is a this system is completely kind of messed up. You cannot say that this is about kind of competition. Like um, Karen Nugent had a again had a tweet there kind of during the week about that this about the annual kind of subsidies to like fossil fuels in, in Ireland um, comes to around two point four billion. So there's two point four billion in subsidies to fossil fuels, and they're talking about kind of you know where we get kind of this money for you know, for, for, for the infrastructure that we need. We're spending over 2.4 billion on subsidies to kind of fossil fuels, in many kind of diesel kind of prices. So, I mean, this is not competition. This is not competition. Capitalism was never about competition, never. It's about brute force and extraction. That's what it's about. It's doing exactly the, 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 the same thing here. And then coupled with that is the conceptual framework which the Irish middle class have, which is that price signal will save us. Yeah, just on that as well, because there is another um, article here in the Business Post that I'm going to touch on. I'm going to go to you after this, Michelle, to, to see what you want, if you have any input on this. But um, Irish firms lag behind, far behind on work to cut climate impact. And this is a new survey that's been done. 
um, that says that <laughs> effectively says that Irish businesses are laggards in tackling climate change when compared to the European peers. Uh, a major new report has shown. Um, it's a uh, it's a wide ranging survey of thirteen thousand five hundred funds and our, our firms. Um, but effectively, what it's saying is that according to the findings, about forty five percent of EU firms have invested in tackling climate change, with those in Western and Northern Europe leading the way. Irish firms are an outlier. Um, with only 19% having done anything uh, to tackle climate change. And here we are, you know, still talking, you know, editorials through all the papers and all the big articles about tackling climate change when nobody is talking about businesses and their impact on it. The carbon tax does not apply to those businesses. The carbon, well, it, it might do, but the carbon tax is targeted, like water charges were, at households, domestic users. We're all the laggards, apparently, not not the big businesses that are making massive profits off the back of this. But yeah, it, it, it says, in throughout this whole survey it just basically says that Irish firms are way 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 behind which is interesting in the current context I don't know Michelle have you got any articles there in the uh, did the Indo bother to cover climate change yeah, not, not particularly in depth but there is and it's kind of just laughing when um John was talking about like how do you fuel the Hummer because there's a piece here around how feeding cows just a spoonful of seaweed helps gases go down. And I feel like this is just the exact example of like feeding the Hummer. Uh, you know, we talk about the, the herd and all of that and how much the impact. The methane is obviously one of the, the main problems here as well. But yeah, so essentially like a spoonful of seaweed a day keeps keeps the climate crisis away. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's an interesting piece there, right? Um, but yeah, I just laughed because I was making such comparisons to what you were talking about, like fueling the Hummers and all of that. But other than that, there's a couple of opinion uh, pieces as well in the Indo. Uh, one from Nisha Doolin, which is an interesting one. It's a good enough angle, kind of like goes back to that, like, you know, that climate hope. Um, you know, we know what the, the solutions are. We have the hope, you know, we know what to do. And uh, we know what we can do but then she kind of like also moves away from like that individualized thing like what we can do um is a lie and that actually it conflates individuals with fossil fuel companies so it's refreshing to read as well um and then she also goes on to talk about like how that we echoes the logic of that personal carbon footprint a term that literally the british petroleum bp invented in 2014 so it was essentially done as this marketing uh, tool that like oh if we release like an individual marketing so you can calculate your carbon as an individual then that just absolves us of all um responsibility on that and like i still know people who will re refer to that, that and they still have it on their website um yeah it talks about like how that's letting it get away with it and everything but um it's also interesting as well it mentioned this um a study from 2017 that like how it's impossible for an in in individual in the us for example to achieve a personal footprint below 8.5 tons a year which is like the limit is supposed to be 1.5 tons or something so like it just shows that like you can't under capitalism in any way um actually meet any of these personal targets that people are setting out because it's the system that is the problem even if you tried under the system um and it mentions even that the the model it was modeled off the back of like the emissions of a homeless person so like you were supposed to be um you know living without shelter to be able to achieve any of these uh, cuts and emissions. Like it's really shocking stuff. Um, but yeah, and like she really echoes one of the lines that I was thinking like, you know, with the IPCC report, it's not shocking to anyone who's been paying attention. It really isn't. Like I'm like, while, you know, more people are learning about it now off the back of it and talking about it more, like that's great. But like, and she says it again, like, you know, it is the fossil fuel industry that and the political class that aids and abets this. It's not the individual's problem. Um, you know, we have, we know about this. You know, we have more scientific consensus now to talk about it, which is great. And then on the flip side, underneath it, there's an opinion piece uh, in the Indo as well from Connor Skeen, 
where basically he just slides off not here not anywhere um the campaign group um and slitchy in the title like nobody has a monopoly on goodness like no one is above like you know and just like kind of like rips into uh, all like activists essentially um you know he's saying like oh china remains silent he has to get that into the first line you know get the the, the dig in at china and then you know he talks about like on tashka and it actually goes back to something i think that connor was chatting about earlier around like how we're importing like the data centers and all of that but like the ta- on tashka are obviously up fighting against and um, the corporate cheese factory that they want to build in the waterford estuary and um, that the dutch are bringing over here because their own climate laws actually block them from building it there so they're going to build it here the emissions will be here be under our um it goes completely against our own climate action plan but then they're going to export the cheese back like so you know we're now and he, he talks about this not here not anywhere so it's like oh well if we're not having the corporate cheese factory down in waterford where will we have it then it's not like not here not anywhere not here not anywhere he's like not here but where and he's just like he just sees it as like oh we'll just move these like carbon emission things in different parts of the world and that will just you know ease up things and you know I think Europe can handle it maybe other places can't and it's just this real like opposite of the opinion to everyone else where it's like no literally not here not anywhere we can't keep building like this kind of infrastructure and keep he keeps talking about like you know, we have to uh, keep keep increasing production to sustain um, and development to sustain prosperity and that we have to consume resources. We have to consume. And he talks about like just that, like there is no it's unquestionable. So it's really interesting to see the two beside each other. But yeah, essentially, he's like slating activists for their work um, and saying, you know, what do you mean not here, not anywhere? It has to happen somewhere. And well, We'd argue, actually, no, it doesn't, actually. Um, you know, the, where? why do we need more that's this corporate cheese factory and, and the Waterford Estuary? Like, why isn't our own climate laws um, strong enough to not allow that to happen? So, yeah, it's an interesting contrast. But, yeah, nothing really else in depth. There was just a couple of opinion, opinion pieces on the environment, and that was it in the Indo. Um, but, yeah, that was it. Of course, you know, the impending end of the civilization as we know it. And, and there's only a couple of articles there. I, actually, I, while we were doing that there, I or while you were talking about that there, I flicked through the Irish Times. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, the Irish Times for the weekend doesn't really cover climate change until page 13. Like, um, considering that, you know, front page of the business post and most other places. And, and I would imagine most outlets around the world were covering this front page. But the Irish Times weekend edition, uh, which is one of the most sold papers in the country, um doesn't you know you have to get right inside it to, to to do it one article that i did find really interesting um was john gibbons's one in, in the business post as well for some of the reasons that john um john mentioned earlier on which is why are we not seeing action um well you know we know the, the science is there it shows us that there are problems it shows that we're about to destroy the planet and all the rest of it and that we ha- we need to restrict but he talks about the lobbying that goes on and i do think it's um it's worth doing a, a show itself not just on the lobbying, but somebody needs to track the lobbying. Like one of the things myself and John were on during the week talking to each other um, through WhatsApp, and I sent him a couple of screenshots about, you know, when the when we had our heat wave uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, it was presented as lovely weather, get out there and buy yourself an ice cream. Um, and the question was asked, you know, <laughs> why, why are you presenting this as just nice weather? It's not. There's something happening here and you need to look at the underlying stuff behind it. And John Gibbons had tweeted on July 19th in the middle of it, RTE Weather TV sponsor, Glanbia, RTE Weather Radio sponsor, Grant Boilers, News Talk Weather Radio sponsor, Ryanair. So all of these companies uh, are, are funneling money into outlets that desperately need finance desperately need to be able to pay their presenters and pay it and at a time when the climate is collapsing so what we're seeing is the misrepresentation 
of what's actually happening because they don't want to frighten away the sponsors. Ryanair do not want to sponsor a radio station that's going to seriously look at climate change and bringing in carbon taxes on fucking airline fuel, which don't apply across Europe at the moment. So when we, t- I, I do think it's worth the special to look into some of this stuff because I do believe we live in a captured state when, when it comes to this stuff, that, that there's a, a couple of insiders, not a couple, but there's insiders who are able to have such a strong say within our political class that nothing ever happens to tackle them. John, you want back in on that? Yeah, no, just on, on the point you're making, um, Dave, and, and the way it's part of the, my analysis, analysis, but it's, I think it might be shared by uh, the three of you and others listening, that what's, what we see in the mainstream media that we're talking about is, yes, we cannot deny the severity, the urgency. It's, it's worse than we thought in terms of climate breakdown. And what's really interesting is, again, um, I don't think the solutions we propose are anywhere near adequate, but we are also beginning to see um, journalists now identifying, well, who are the lobbyists? So, you know, Michelle was on about Nisha Dolan's piece in uh, the Business Post, and she does mention fossil fuels. Let's not confuse people with fossil fuels. So that's really good. You got Saif O'Neill in the weekend kind of review section of the Irish Times naming, uh, you know, IBEC as a major lobbying group behind the data centre, um, you know, rollout and so on. Really, really good. You've got John Gibbons then and others in the Business Post calling out the Irish Farmers Union, which again only represents big farmers. Let's not, you know, pretend that somehow they represent all farmers uh, in, in the Republic. So I, I welcome that, that at least we're now beginning to see the um, part of the process of joining the dots. So here's what the science says. Why aren't we moving on what the science is saying? Well, it's the likes of IBEC, the Irish Farmers Union, you know, those pushing for, for data centres. And I do think that, you know, that that is, you know, uh, positive and it needs to be developed. And in the way, David, exactly what you said about trying to pull back the veil, well, who and what are the forces that are actually trying to prevent more, um, you know, aggressive and necessary climate action. So it, that, that is to, to me to be welcome. But again, all with the caveat that most of even these articles that are identifying some of the lobbying groups and the special interests that are locking us into basically ecocidal growth orientated, you know, capitalism fall radically short of um, the solutions that are required are systematic, systemic, structural in terms of transport, food, energy, and so on. And they end up with various versions of technology. And you get an awful lot of this in the business post, surprise, surprise, that somehow the, um, there's even one article that talks about the wizards, the wizards um, as opposed to the profits. The profits in uh, the thinking business world are the ones who can see the problems ahead. The wizards are the ones who are going to use markets and technology to solve the problem. And this is kind of the, the logic of that kind of article that Connor mentioned about corporate Ireland and the race to, to zero. But I'll just finish by saying this is extremely dangerous. It's mythic thinking. There is no techno fix for the problems that we have. The solutions are much more systemic in the very structure of our economy, you know, growth based, private, uh, you know, ownership related, profit oriented capitalism. And that's something that I, I thankfully I did manage on BBC Ulster up here on Monday when they invited me on to talk about the IPCC report. It probably wasn't what they were expecting. But that's what I said. I said, listen, the problem here isn't necessarily carbon. Carbon is only the effects. The underlying causes are capitalism. Now, it'd be interesting to see whether or not I get invited uh, back on uh, to give my view. But I do think there's the opportunity now, with the exception, with the acceptance of the science, 
the identification kind of often vaguely of some of the problems of, of special interest, it's now to push that narrative and say, okay, let's now move to actually saying that you need a political response to this. And it's not one that's going to be solved, as I say, by technology and certainly not by, by markets. I don't know about that, John. I mean, like, I mean, like, we now have robot trees in Cork, you know? So I, I do think that you're being a bit, a bit negative there now, t- to be quite honest, you know? And not just one, two, two robot trees in Cork. So, I mean, I don't, I, I think we're on the path here now, be grand. Gosh, you're dead. I'm just wrapping Elon Musk. Um, all, all the lads want to fly <laughs> off to Mars and sure the jobs are good. Actually, on that, planet, let's go to other ones. On that one, like Dolly Parton has spent her millions on buying books and, uh, and like, and like developing vaccines. And these guys have spent their millions uh, building penis shaped their rockets to go to fucking Mars. You know what I mean? Like Dolly Parton. Every uh-huh. every town, city, and village in Ireland needs a statue of like Dolly Park. And I'm not being facetious here. But maybe, well, maybe just a little bit. A little bit. Uh, right. Well, we're going to move on in a, in a second. So uh, hands up who wants to come in first. Before, before you do, um, Michelle's uh, anecdote about uh, our story of feeding cows seaweed reminded me of um, my time in Australia, actually, where over there they market kangaroo as an alternative to beef because kangaroos don't fart so there's no emissions no methane gases that come out of um kangaroos so i thought i was being really climate conscious when i was eating kangaroos on the barbecue over there but i re- before yesterday when i was um i was thinking about this i was saying why why don't we sell kangaroo here uh in in those numbers i and i looked it up but it was based the 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 sales of kangaroo meat back in 2010 11 12 and all was based on a false or a fake report that that kangaroos don't fart they do in fact fart so just to let everybody know that if you're being marketed kangaroo meat because they don't have any flatulence whatsoever it's based on bullshit so uh pardon the pun on that front so um michelle do you want to come in with your story you you've something there on housing i believe I was just kind of to kind of go back into the, the front page and it's kind of developed a little bit as well but like the story around like obviously the developers um and the the 500 million to coax them back in yeah so it's talking about like you know this vicious vicious cycle of like the home truths and housing in Dublin and it's kind of like a lot of it is what we've been hearing before and um, but interestingly enough right there's this instagram called uh crazy house prices a lot of people have been talking about it this guy called um what's his name the Kieran uh, Mulqueen he set up this Instagram and it's talking about like comparing like crazy house prices in Dublin uh to the house prices in like rural areas and what you can get and it's it's created a lot of like meet like people talking about it and he's been offering advice as well to searching for his house himself and he talks what I find really interesting about it because I've heard I follow his work online like I've heard him and do a couple of things now to the point where I think he was involved and actually uh, he noticed something he was campaigning for something recently but how he got his house, which he's just got it recently, was he went around to his local neighborhood in Dublin and wrote letters to people who owned the houses saying, look, I'm a local, me and my wife want to live here in our local area, and essentially wrote what their story was and put it in letterboxes. And they have now been offered a house um, out of that. Like, obviously, that they can buy a house from a local who wants to sell outside of the, out of the industry. But, like, if this is how we're all expected to be able to get houses, is that someone will do us a favour who might know us down the road or might feel like, like our sob story, like, 
like essentially like it's not begging for house but like oh god like it actually breaks my heart to think like this is a man who's like spent the last couple of years researching houses researching how he can buy a house how he can offer others to buy a house and it came down to him having sent put letters in people's letterboxes asking now to be fair the same tactic was used in Waterford recently where they were putting letters in houses the, the property uh, management companies were putting letters into people's houses been like do you want to sell up um, we you know we'll we'll snap it up for good price and all of that and obviously now a lot a lot of my friends who are renting in houses now their houses are now been on on the on the market um but yeah really interesting to see that story there and yeah essentially then it just goes on and reiterates the the kind of the line as well around like capital's rental crisis to get worse when workers return to this idea of like returning to work um that we've kind of like not realized how bad the housing crisis has got because we kind of like obviously the, all of the covid stuff people moved home um, but like like we can't forget how bad it was before uh, COVID as well. It was really bad. We had like the quarter two rental reports as well coming out, um, I think during the week, um, which shows like property uh, rental prices going up like well over whatever rent caps there are. But also even in places rurally, like for example, Waterford, like 11.7% increase in one quarter, 11.7%. Like right now there's like under 12 rental properties on daft in Waterford. It's getting really, really, like really tough. And these are like the areas that are known for being like the affordable places to live. Come to Waterford, it's important, you know, like cheaper houses, cheaper rent, you know, nice place to live. But like we have the seaside, we have the mountains and all of that. And now it's become the point where actually this is a bit of a disaster we can't even rent here god, god knows what's going to happen when the students come back in september because the student accommodation is now being rented out um like to, to to people who need to other people who need it as well with families and stuff so it's it's become a real a real like disaster zone i think it, with the combination of obviously people who are returning to work students returning uh, to campuses um it's going to be really really i'm not really sure where this is going to go and of course then you have the government's housing fraud plan which is apparently going to solve all of this by just handing money to developers but like it, like it's honestly god I'm, i i can't see how the any of those solutions are going to kind of bring us out of this but yeah essentially there's a two-page spread in the middle of the, the times where it's talking about property prices um, and it's the same like you know the simon community is coming out to talk about it threshold are coming out to talk about it but we need to see action and we really, really need to start action this whole housing for all ripoff of like the campaign that we ran like what two years ago that homes for all protests is just not going to cut it from what I can see. And there are protests being organized now in September and October. And it's going to be interesting to see how many people turn out for them. The, the housing, um, the National Housing and Homeless Coalition are organizing protests. So and the Raise, uh, Raise the Roof Coalition. So it'll be interesting to see and um, how many people will actually will turn out to those and um, I, I I feel like it's going to be massive. Just on, on staying on the housing team, there there is um, as we mentioned it earlier on, Killian Woods front page um, says landlords leaving homes empty rather than reduce rents. And in it, it's it, the article talks about why they're doing it effectively is just because of the they don't want to fall into the trap of the pressure zones um, that were brought in a number of years ago. So if they rent out a property and that area gets you know designated a rental pro- a, a pressure zone. Um, they can only increase rents by 4%. I, I don't buy that. I, I think they're leaving properties empty more so because it keeps the, the, 
the price is inflated in all of their other properties. Um, it does talk later on in, in the paper about Iris Reef buying up a property. Um, I think it's in Drumcondra there. Um, one property for double the price, it bought the other 98 properties in the same building, the same um, apartment complex. So they now own all 99 units in one complex there, Iris Reef. So they're continuing on this thing of just snapping up every piece of property that can, they can. Like uh, if they're spending 500 grand on a property that they had just spent 300 grand on all of the other 98 of them, then they just have too much money. Um, I don't know, Connor or John, if you just want to come in on this on housing or, or if you've got any other stories. Could I just make just one, one uh, point, which is kind of, been picked up, but often in an, uh, you know, um, often the wrong and, and not very sophisticated manner, is that we need to start connecting decarbonisation and the climate crisis to things like public transportation, housing retrofit for people, so that it's not seen as an individual cost or, or a sacrifice. And there was a couple of pieces in the Saturday Guardian talking about how the biggest blockage in the UK government system now to more ambitious climate action is actually the Treasury because they're cutting, you know, insulation grants for um, homeowners. Or the fact that, um, in case you didn't know, that there's more VAT on getting solar panels if you can afford it, of course. I'm not saying this is a solution, just to give an example of the, the, the way the economic system is, you know, uh, completely unfit for purpose. There's 20% VAT on getting solar panels fitted to your house in the UK. There's 5% VAT on gas boilers. So there's an issue here about, again, aligning our, you know, tax and welfare system so that ordinary people can benefit. And I have to say, the other thing that I did, you know, notice in some of the coverage, uh, in, in even in the Irish press, the Business Post, and indeed some of the Irish Times coverage, is, is this movement away from these individualised responses. Now, it's natural. You know, many of us are kind of public speakers. And often when I give talks on the climate or the energy transition, you know, an understandable question you get from people is, but to be fair to them, it's often the first time maybe they've come across, oh, what can I do? And that feeds very nicely into a kind of green capitalist, low carbon version of what we have now of you having to invest in various forms of low carbon, different ways of, of, of living, you know, local organic produce, which are often outside the, you know, the, the financial capacity of, of most people. That is not the response. In much the same way that Michelle quite rightly pointed out that BP created the concept of individual carbon calculator footprint idea in the same way that the waste industry creates this notion of recycling and individualizes the responsibility onto households rather than seeing it as a, as a structural issue. So again, there are glimmers of this at least um, identification of these more collective structural political challenges. But a major issue is going to be around getting the capital and the finance, because this is a big ticket item transition, and it cannot be disaggregated down to individual households. This has to be about decisive state action in terms of getting people's buy-in, because at the moment, a lot of people are seeing this as either the remit of the guilty, educated urban middle classes in terms of they're the ones who are excited about this, because it's very clear that, and I think it's um, um, Sean McCabe's piece, uh, a piece of polling that um, Task has done has clearly stated that for most Irish people, this is not top of their agenda. And so why would it be? It is housing. So the issue is, how do we connect solving the housing crisis with the, you know, the, the climate crisis? To me, it's, it's uh, you know, a blind woman on a galloping horse could see that we want to create the most highest quality 
energy efficient housing stock that uh, that we can so that when people buy houses that are affordable and available that they are going to be not spending loads of money on on trying to heat them that's the type of narrative that needs to be done to connect the housing crisis this idea of building back better and so on as we come out of the pandemic we create local jobs which we absolutely need we create you know hopefully high well paid unionized jobs in the in, in the creation of a solution to the housing crisis. And we also then lay down the foundations of not locking ourselves and our housing system into using carbon. And that's a trick that we're not really, the trick is the wrong word in a way, but we're not connecting in a way the transportation problems of people having to live way outside Dublin, the housing crisis uh, and so on. And that's something I think we need a lot more discussion about, that these are not two separate issues. They are, they are part and parcel of the same problem that we're facing. Just on that, and it's a good link, I suppose, and I'll come to Connor on this story because I know he's been looking at the business post as well. But um, this is about Patrick Paddy Cosgrave's um, uh, business web summit um, receiving 531,000 euros from the government agency last year. The government agency is Enterprise Ireland. Um, in, and the, in, in the whole point of that fund that we're going to be talking about now for a second is um, that it incentivizes jobs, you know, job creation and all that sort of stuff. And when I, when you go through it, right, obviously they're making a point of Paddy Cosgrave because he's he's been so critical at the media. But when you look through the rest of the article, um, Glambia, which made pre-tax profits of almost 70 million last year in 2020, received 4.6 million in this enterprise Ireland fund, right? So we're giving money to these giant companies that are hugely profitable. Four million is, 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 is not just peanuts that you throw around, do you know what I mean? But Intercom, Dublin headquarter unicorn, um, I don't know what that means, but was awarded 3.72 million. And Exergen, which is backed by 7 million from investors, Norman Crowley, they received 1.18 million from enterprise Ireland. All these massive global companies multinationals receiving literally millions of euros off enterprise ireland at a time when we could be incentivizing maybe clean tech or retrofitting or a whole range of other things so um the irony of the story obviously is that paddy cosgrave uh, in, in one part of it explains in a tweet they, they they quote one of his tweets where he went into a meeting with enterprise ireland he he bought a cowboy hat and left it on the chair uh, for them to pick up when he left, when he was out of the room type of thing. Thought it was hilarious because he said, I won't be shut up from from um, tackling or ad- addressing these, um, well, I don't know what you call it, a quango. He doesn't call it a quango, but he says, I, I, the people in these in the government who are just wasting taxpayers' money, like the irony of him criticising wasting taxpayers' money when Web Summit just got over half a million euros from, from Enterprise Ireland. I don't know, Connor, you were looking at that as well, were you? Yeah, I mean, like, to maybe kind of step back just kind of one bit uh, from this, but like the IDA and Enterprise Ireland is a state within a state um, set up in 1949, um, has its own rules, its own kind of oversight. The controller and auditor general of the state is legally barred. Is It is illegal for the for the state auditor to audit the grants that the IDA gives out. Um, if you read that article that quotes about kind of Paddy Cosgrave, Cosgrave uh, getting kind of half a million, that came from, from EU figures on like state aid rules because you cannot get that information here. They get 800 million to, well, it's, it's well over 1 billion in funds every year, 800 million or so. And there is no public oversight 
of those funds whatsoever. You get into what they've done in terms of destroying individuals, farmers, landowners. You look at Limerick, act like Kildare, the, the, the whole kind of approach of the IDA and Enterprise Ireland, that's its offshoot, is that they play by their own rules. That's what they do. And they have hundreds of millions in budgets and we have no oversight, effectively no oversight of that. There's a minister who might, but the minister is on board, you know. So what we're seeing here is that they give out millions to a multinational like companies. Now, why are they doing that? At the same time, you look at Ireland's kind of business structure. You have sectors in Ireland, like in terms of, of the kind of creative kind of industries. That are just, it's treated as a cottage industry here. If you look at gaming, you look at animation in Ireland, where we have some real talent. And where's the support for that? Where is it happening? So what we have here is that the IDA and Enterprise Ireland, in my opinion, has that attitude that is not kind of dissimilar to Ireland in the 1950s. In the 1950s, we would breed cattle for export. That's what we did. All the value left with the alive cattle. They weren't processed here. Sent over to, to, to like Britain, and they made all the money there. Now what we do is that we breed companies for export. So IDA, Enterprise Ireland, build up kind of startups in Ireland. One out of, one out, one out of 100 will make it. But that one that makes it then gets kind of bought up by kind of multinationals. So we now export businesses in some way that we used to do for like cattle and for people as well. There's the same kind of mentality all the way through. Like of all the things that are going on here, and I'll finish on this rant, but like, isn't it great? Isn't it just great just living in a tax haven, lads? Isn't it just wonderful? You know, housing, health, infrastructure, transport, anything that matters is just, oh, there's no money for this. But yet there's 647,880 euros for a company in which Dennis O'Brien is an investor. And that's, that's no problem, absolutely no problem. And you will not get those figures from the Public Accounts Committee because it's illegal. It's actually against the law for the IDA to give those figures out to the Public Accounts Committee of the dog. It's a state within a state. And you, where are the journalists on this? Where are they? And just, and I will go to, I think Michelle had her hand up first there, John, but uh, but a, a linked article or a related article in my eyes, like concerns raised over severe shortage of wet trade apprentices. It's talking about how they can't get enough apprentices in bricklaying and plastering and all that sort of stuff. And I would imagine it's because the wages for apprentices are absolutely abysmal. So we, we concentrate and give them the money to the likes of those Glanbias and Web Summit and all those, but but the the, the, the places, the people, the, the infrastructure that we need around housing and all the rest of it is completely, you know, starved of funding. Uh, Michelle, you wanted in? They actually only brought in fees for apprenticeship programs there a couple of years ago. It's like a grand a year to do it. So like there's back, they put up barriers there recently. Like, mm. um, but yeah, when you're talking about, um, you know, not having funding for services and stuff, it just reminds me of the the story this week as well around um, bus, uh, the Dublin bus. Uh, I don't know if people are following that. Um, so essentially the bus drivers have rejected the the plan that was on the table, um, the union plan. So 
the way the article is written is that the Dublin bus trade union leaders are scrambling to get their members back inside after um, a huge vote. So essentially, the, the there was a, a proposal put on the table and uh, negotiated by the union with um, the bus, sorry, the, the Dublin bus, and essentially 97.6% um, of workers voted against it. Um, so huge opposition to it, despite it being maybe recommended by um, the by the officials. So yeah, I'm not really sure where this kind of leads to the kind of the statement that was coming out afterward. So essentially, what was offered, sorry, was uh, they they were kind of offering this other package so that I could compete with these private operators. So it's this whole thing of like, essentially, what why are we not investing in this rather than trying to actually just meet the private market where they're at and undercutting services completely? But essentially, the the way it was sold was like drivers were being offered a pay hike, but what they were being offered in return, from my understanding, is, you know, no Sunday premiums, uh, really massive changes of rostering, like kind of like part-time ad hoc hours. Um, and yeah, essentially the, the really, really, the workers are just like, absolutely, this was this would impact on our quality of life and um, the kind of rostering that was being offered. Um, so essentially now I think... Um, like there, there seems to be some sort of internal conflict as well here. I'm not really sure what's going on or between some of the officials and some of the union members and, and maybe a campaign to, to vote against it. But I, I don't know the details of that. But yeah, so essentially now the union have said um, like that this Bus Connects pro- project, um, which will have a 23% increase in bus services, and this is why they're trying to negotiate these new contracts, um, will un- like... Yeah, sorry, the National Transport Authority, they've come out and said that they're actually trying to undermine the Dublin bus drivers' conditions, particularly to that, to that effect, so impede and eat into bus drivers' time away from the workplace. So the National Transport Authority have a role here as well in like how we look at our service provision as well when it comes to public services and like how like why they're going to be putting up things for tender uh, rather than actually giving it to the state-owned companies. I, Connor, you want to come in on that? Yeah, like the NTA is horrendously right-wing. It is unbelievably, its entire kind of management is just completely kind of sold on like privatizing those services. And they were put in charge of that for that reason. They were put in charge because they have those views, not in spite of them. They are horrendously kind of right wing. And their whole their whole kind of ethos and like philosophy, it goes completely against climate action and like where we're going here. You know, I mean, like we need to keep the loo is free you know <laughs> keep it free you know stop you know all those chancers who were you know who you know who were getting on in those kind of high-vis kind of jackets they need to be called out you know what i mean like keep it free it, it, it's the only way but then there was a survey done recently i don't know by whom but the only region in ireland that was satisfied with a public transport was dublin because it's the only region that has it so like like, like you've got to you you've got to invest in public transport if you want to tackle kind of climate change. Um, just, just finally, just on that point, and and I know that we're like I know that we are kind of getting close on time, but going back to kind of John's point of you know about kind of farmers, there's a very telling kind of a quote from the minister McConnell. Have I said his his name right? Um, where he says about you know how how the methane can arise, which has been huge since 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 2015, down to the uh, down to the lifting of the cap on milk, and now it's it's like dairy farming. But what he said was that this expansion, which he welcomes, 
um, has not been matched by a decline in beef farming, which is unfortunate. You can see the entire kind of class dynamic that is playing out even within farming and, uh, and the IFA, that the dairy far- that it, not dairy farmers, but the dairy kind of industry is given full kind of uh, role in this. Um, over the beef farming, which in my view was the only kind of which if, if there's any kind of, you know, kind of uh, farming that has a future, it's going to be more in beef than in, uh, uh, you know, uh, than in dairy. It's, it, it, it's that kind of high, high value, high product, um, far, you know, kind of family farming. That's like that's like it's any future. That's where it is. But the industry has kind of other ideas and actually says that it, it's unfortunate that that these small beef farmers won't just die, won't just go off and die somewhere, you know? I mean, it's incredible stuff, you know? Anyway. Clearly not getting the market signals, Connor. No, um, they're not. No, uh, no, uh, they aren't. No, like price Uber Alice. Uh, <laughs> John, have you got any other stories before we wrap up? I, I just have a quick, kind of, you know, um, reflection on some of the things that have been discussed there. I mean, the, people, the point you made, Dave, about, you know, wet trades, and, and the issue, yes, pay people decent wages and you quickly see, that, you know, people come forward. Uh, and there's a similar kind of argument in terms of the green transition. There's a massive um, bottleneck and a lack of skills um, in terms of that area. And the fear, of course, is that the, the skills would be provided by the state only then to be uh, entered into a privatized energy system. And in a way, I'm, I'm thinking here partly of our, our good friend David Mac Williams has a piece in The Times around you know and it's true you know ireland the island of ireland has a fantastic potential in terms of renewable energy provision but again we're back to what connor pointed out that that paper of note um is framing the energy transition purely in a corporate format i mean this is the this is what the biofueling the hummer analogy looks like so we move from a privatized for-profit carbon-based energy system to bada bing bada boom to a private for-profit renewable energy system and there's no role for a public goods approach to electricity electricity should by rights be seen as a human right in the same way as housing healthcare, you know free public transportation actually there's a lot of research in terms of what connor just said that actually a bit like you know free public wi-fi in many of our cities it actually would save in terms of air pollution the health burden connectivity to actually make it if not all public transportation free in densely uh, you know populated cities certainly, you know, some of the main um, routes and so on. But there is an issue around, I think, you know, framing this in a in a positive light. And I, I do think this is not an apocalyptic, just to be a little bit more professorial. The apocalypse has a very bad name. The apocalypse is not, as we conventionally view, this doom and gloom. The apocalypse, if it you place it back to the ancient Greek roots of the word, as I've done, because it's part of my job, it simply means a, a revelation. It's a lifting of the veil. And I think to go back to something that we've been talking about, that yet the acceptance of the climate science is there in the mainstream media. There's the beginning to be the dimly identifiable, well, who are the class interests? Who are the lobbyists, the special interests preventing change? I mean, to me, that's part of this, if you like, positive view of the apocalypse. I bet you never thought you'd hear you say that or me say that on, on, on a Sunday of all days. But it's that idea that we are beginning to get to the serious issue of the political economy dynamics, the conflicting class interest, the ideologies um, at play. And that's why, you know, the week at work um, as part of the left block 
project and so on is an attempt to try and you know do that revelation dig in behind um you know the news stories and so on and so the last two points i'd make are nothing to do with what i've just said one is because my late father-in-law was a mayo man i was delighted for mayo i have to say yesterday that may be very that might be the most controversial thing i've said on the pod so i was delighted to see mayo of course he had the small issue of, of kerry to get through so I think that needs to be acknowledged. And the last one, because she was an excellent singer-songwriter, yeah. just to note the passing of the wonderful Texan singer-songwriter, Nancy Griffith, who um, I've always had a lot of time for in terms, a bit like Dolly Parton, that's been mentioned already by Connor, as a person with decent politics and an excellent voice. And she's written some great songs about um, Ireland and Belfast and so on. So they're two issues that I'd just like to leave readers with, yeah, well, and listeners. We, we might at some stage see if uh, Connor and John will organise a festival so we can all go and attend and uh, and listen to all these brilliant musicians. I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm going to wrap up with two stories that are going to abuse my position, um, but they're both covered in the Irish Times. Um, this, the first one is covered in the Irish Times and in the Business Post, and it's about um, what's going on in Afghanistan. We've got an article there by Daniel Murray, which talks about Ireland to host UN meeting on Afghan women as situation deteriorates. And the, the story talks about how the Taliban, Taliban, as we probably all know, are advancing into Kabul and have taken over a huge amount of provincial uh, capitals. Uh, but it talks about how uh, on the way there, there's a lot of forced marriages and rape going on with, with women in Afghanistan. And I think that's completely like that's linked somewhat to the article in the Irish Times, where it talks about um, how the United States and look, we can talk about the Taliban and how it was established in the in, in the eighties uh, by the United States in the first place. But that in twenty twenty last year, Washington struck a deal with the Taliban that circumvented the Kabul government, uh, who are now suffering the consequences. The U.S. pressured Kabul to release three five thousand nine hundred four hundred ninety four uh, of the Taliban prisoners. Um, and according to the Afghan officials, they're saying that at least 720 of them have been back in the battlefield. Uh, so, again, the United States with its hand fingerprints all over international affairs and destroying the lives of so many other people. The other thing is... Sorry, Dave, could I just quickly come in there just to let people know, there's a piece in The Guardian on that. Um, the estimated cost of the US intervention in Afghanistan is a trillion dollars, and they've been there for 20 years. And look at the absolute abject failure of that neo-imperialist project and then to think of why the taliban was established in the first place which was to circumvent or to stop any of the progressive um developments that were happening in the region at the time uh but then the the last article and i think i might have gone by it i did um is today is the 23rd anniversary of oma the oma bombing um and in fairness peter murta in the irish times is a really good piece it's a long um a full page spread but it is fascinating and it's worth reading into because um part of the article obviously is talking about that there, the calls from mr justice mark horner last month uh, asking both the north and the south to hold separate but simultaneous investigations um, and when you get into the detail of the article you, you really you really get a sense of why that demand is being made because there were fuck-ups not just of the investigation in oma and up north but the the, the guardie down south who happened to lose um, some of the key 
uh, evidence, pieces of evidence from the bomb making facilities and like even the gloves. They wanted to do DNA four years after, by the way, four years after Omar, that they were the, the British authorities contacted the Gardaí and asked them, could they get the gloves from that facility to do DNA testing? And they said, we've lost them. We don't know where they are. So um, huge amount of fuck ups uh, on both sides of the, 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 the so-called border. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting read. But, yeah, we just wanted to, to, to raise that as well. Um, I think that's it. I don't think anyone else has any more stories. So we've covered everything. Uh, I want to thank our guest, uh, Professor John Barry, Professor of Green Political Economy in Queen's University in, in Belfast. I want to thank uh, my co-host, Michelle Byrne and Connor McCabe um, for, for joining me here. Uh, this has been the week of work and I couldn't get away without doing the plug, but we're part of Left Block. Uh, along with John and his podcast, again, the ABCs of Green Politics. Um, if you can support us, if you like what we do on a weekly basis or, or monthly or however frequently you're listening to the pods, please support us on patreon.com forward slash left block. Uh, you can get more information about the project there as well. Uh, thanks again, everybody, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>